Well, thank you for that um, reading. And uh, thank you for the privilege of being invited to come and speak on such a profoundly important question. Why does a good and loving God allow suffering? Um, it might be helpful to just let you a little bit know a little bit about who it is that's speaking to you. Um, I'm from Australia. That's why my accent sounds so funny. Um, my wife and I have been here for about 10 years. Um, she works as a minister at a church in South Bucks and is now also an honorary chaplain for Christians in Government. I used to be a lawyer, um, but after doing some study here um, in theology, uh, surprisingly find myself working in a full-time vocational Christian setting for the OCCA, the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. So I spend a lot of time speaking in um, schools and universities and workplaces about some of these big questions that we all face. And obviously this is, the question of suffering is um, ever-present in our minds over this last season. And um, we all carry wounds um, and loss and uh, well, I'm no different as well. Um, you're probably aware of the fact that this is a question that's often thrown at Christian faith. <clears throat> if God's so good and so loving, why does he allow suffering? The implication clearly being that if there really was an all-powerful, good and loving God as Christians believe, then he wouldn't allow suffering. So there isn't a Christian God. Your God, Christians, does not exist. Well, I want to start by pointing out that not only is this a question that is thrown at Christian faith, it's also a question that is thrown from within Christian faith, from within the Bible itself, by God's people. The prophet Habakkuk, for example, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? We find this same question why in the book of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah, and by the book uh, of Job, Job, and King David in the Psalms. And we see it also in this passage read just now from John chapter 11. The sisters, Mary and Martha, have been by Lazarus's side for days watching him waste away as they experience the cruel horror of this sickness, hoping each day that Jesus would show up and save him. The message was sent days and days and days ago for Jesus to come, but Jesus doesn't show up. He has the power to heal, they know that, but he doesn't show up, he doesn't arrive, he doesn't come, and Lazarus dies. As we read, Mary reached the place where Jesus was and when she saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Clearly, the implication, why didn't you not show up? Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We read that Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But then others said, could not he who, have, who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Again, why? That was the natural response of Mary and Martha and the friends and family to ask the Lord, where were you? Why didn't you show up and do something? You've got the power to stop this sort of thing. Why didn't you? Don't you even care? 
I wonder if you've ever asked God a question like that. The first time in my life I ever asked God a question like that was as a young man sitting beside the bed of my grandmother after she'd been in a terrible accident, racked in pain and experiencing what seemed to be a needlessly slow and agonizing death due to internal bleeding that couldn't be stopped. We shouldn't be surprised if, like Mary and Martha, we find ourselves asking these sorts of questions in response to suffering. And what is Jesus' response to Mary's questioning? It's neither a response of anger at her questions, nor is it a response of disinterest in her suffering. We read that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. The God of the Bible is clearly not immune to our suffering. He is moved by it. He does care. He does care. In fact, one of the Psalms paints a beautiful picture of God as the one who holds all our tears in a bottle. Every single one of your tears matters to God. God really cares. Nevertheless, suffering can still test our belief in God's goodness because as human beings, we're just tempted to think if we were God, we would just get rid of suffering altogether. So why doesn't God? But I wonder what would we think if we were able to see the whole picture like God is able to see the whole picture? Would we really want to get rid of all suffering altogether? We know, for example, from human experience that some suffering is not all bad. Suffering helps us to develop compassion and understanding towards others. I've heard it said that the best doctor for treating an illness is one who's actually had to go through that illness themselves and knows what it is to experience that pain and that suffering. Similarly, we're much more likely to admire a person who has got to where they are through hard work and and blood and sweat and tears and we are to admire a person for whom everything has just come easily all the time. Well, why is that? It's because we intuitively recognize that suffering helps grow our character, whereas a pain-free life tends to stunt a person's character. It was the writer John Eldridge who once said, I don't trust a man who hasn't suffered. I don't trust a man who hasn't suffered. You often find, um, and I've heard it said in, in, in settings where people have experienced horrific injury, perhaps lost the use of their legs, for example, and then someone beside them says, no, you'll get through this, you'll get through this, they won't listen. And it's only often when someone who's had the same experience comes beside them, someone who also has lost the use of their legs and said, I've been there, I know what it's like, but you will get through this. We, we, we trust there's a weight, there's a gravitas that comes in the lives of those who have been through deep suffering. Suffering also causes many who've never given God a second thought in their lives to seriously consider the existence of God, often for the first time. Contemporary French philosopher Luc Ferry argues that it's our experiences of heartbreak, tragedy, and suffering more than anything else in this life that incline us to consider whether in fact there is more to life than just this life, whether in fact there is a God. Suffering in a way forces many to think, what is life all about? And that can lead many on a path towards God who would not otherwise have set out on that path 
if life was always plain sailing. So clearly, not all suffering is all bad. A friend of mine grew up in Nepal. His parents were medical missionaries who treated people with leprosy. He explained to me that leprosy is caused by a bacteria that destroys nerve endings so that a person loses the ability to feel pain. That it's not actually the leprosy that causes deformity in hands and feet. It's the persistent injuries that occur as a result of the person being unable to experience pain and suffering. They stub their toe and they don't realize it. They put their hand in the fire and they don't realize it. In the West, we're accustomed to thinking of pain and suffering as our greatest enemies. And that's because we're accustomed to thinking of goodness through the lens of pain minimization and pleasure maximization. And because we're conditioned to think of goodness through this lens, we imagine that if God exists, he should create a world without pain or suffering. But if God did rid the world of pain and suffering, where would that leave you and me? I'm not asking whether that would leave us worse off or better off. I'm asking whether it would even leave us existing. This is a serious question that, that even secular philosophers have asked. If God created a world without suffering and evil, would we even be in that world? Because asking for a world without hurt is asking for a world full of people who never choose to hurt others or cause others pain. And if we're honest, that's not us. At least it's not me. Because sometimes I'm selfish and sometimes I hurt other people in my selfishness. God could, being all-powerful, create a world without evil and suffering by populating the world with automatons, robots who always do the right thing because that is what they have been programmed to do. But such a world as this, though it would be free of pain and free of evil, allows no space for love. For in order for there to be love, there must be genuine freedom, freedom of choice, because love that is not freely given is not truly love. The Bible tells us that God didn't choose automatons. He chose you. He chose me. He chose love. And we also read that the life and the freedom that God gave us to choose love, we, on large part, have used to reject God's love and wisdom, and that our relationships have fractured as a result, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, our relationship with the natural world, and the relationship with ourselves. We are broken, the Bible says, morally and relationally and spiritually broken, and of course we see the evidence of this brokenness in our newspapers every day of the week. But the Bible also tells us the good news that God has not just looked on from a distance, leaving us to our brokenness and mess. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son who bodily entered into our world of pain and suffering and in doing so experienced what it is to suffer, to be hungry, cold, tired, misunderstood, betrayed, rejected, humiliated, tortured, and killed. Of all the major responses to suffering, this is absolutely unique. Jesus Christ is absolutely unique. For example, in, in Islam, 
one is taught that Allah, God, is pulling all the strings from way up high and human beings have no free will. And therefore, everything that happens is his will. And since suffering happens, then all suffering is his will. And since suffering is Allah's will, we do not question it nor resist it. The only response is to submit and to accept it. Classic Hinduism teaches karma, the caste system, that whatever happens in life, you deserve it. If you're born into abject poverty as one of the untouchables, the lowest of the low, then karma tells us that is where you belong. Buddha rejected the caste system, but also rejected suffering, not by saying that it's wrong, but by saying that it's merely an illusion. Teaches that our suffering is just, it's not real. Now, if you're an atheist, um, the sort of atheist like Richard Dawkins, then he might say suffering, suffering is neither right nor wrong, just or unjust, it's just bad luck. Because as Dawkins would say, there is at bottom in the universe no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, just blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, lions eat zebras and wolves eat lambs and the strong hurts the weak and that's just the way life is. And some atheist philosophers, obviously not all, but some, uh, Nietzsche famously, uh, have even suggested not only is this the way that things are, this is the way that things ought to be. The strong should dom dominate the weak and this is uh, nature's way of weeding out the weak and helping us to evolve. So you can see then that when it comes to this question of suffering, which of course every single person must face because it is a human question. There are some very different explanations on offer from the major explanations on offer. On the question of suffering, as on almost every other question, one finds that religions are not all the same. They're very, very different and the differences make a difference. And Christianity, it doesn't say that suffering is just natural, so go with it, or that suffering is just bad luck, so deal with it, or that suffering is just an illusion, so ignore it, or that suffering is just God's will, so don't question it. Christianity does not deny, nor does it diminish the reality of evil and suffering. Rather, it affirms our deepest instinct that the way this world is, is not the way that it should be. And it allows us to name evil for what it is. It takes the reality of evil and suffering very seriously. That's why at the center of Christianity, there is a cross. And on that cross, a man, broken and bleeding for you and for me, the God-man, Jesus Christ. When C.S. Lewis, the renowned Christian writer from Northern Ireland and author of um, you know, beautiful children's books, the Narnia series, uh, when he was a young boy, he tragically lost his mother to cancer. He describes himself as turning to atheism in response, but finding himself as a young atheist living in a world of contradictions. He writes, as a young man, I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. And I was equally angry with God for creating such a world as this. Lewis discovered the profound truth that suffering does not get easier by getting rid of God. In the midst of suffering, Lewis didn't discover a better philosophy. Ultimately, he, did, he discovered that what he needed most was a friend who, who loved him and truly understood what he was going through. We all do, a friend who knows intimately what it is to suffer loss 
rejection, pain and grief. A friend that we know is completely for us, who will never leave us or never forsake us in our hour and moments of need. And Jesus Christ is exactly that sort of friend. In Jesus Christ, we can have a friendship so profound and lasting that even the worst things of this world cannot rob our lives of meaning and joy. And we're all hungry for a connection like that. We wrongly think that our main problem is that we aren't always able to get what we want or able to avoid what we don't want. In other words, we can't stop bad things happening. But from God's perspective, our biggest problem is not that we're disempowered, it's that we're disconnected from the God who made us and who loves us. And as a result, we're disconnected from each other and even from ourselves. Sam Wells observes that when God's people in the Bible are about to go through a time of trial or pain or suffering, God often encourages them with a certain phrase. The phrase begins with, fear not. But he doesn't say, fear not, because I will never allow anything bad to happen to you ever in your entire life. He says, fear not, for I will be with you. And for the one who is in the midst of suffering, these, these words, I will be with you, can make all the difference in the world. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a philosopher from Yale University who wrote a book about the death of his son, Eric, called Lament for a Son. That book ends with a vision of God bearing the suffering of the world in tears. And once asked in an interview why he wrote the book, his response was as follows. My little book, Lament for a Son, is not, about, is not a book about grief, it is a cry of grief. After the death of our son, I dipped into a number of books about grief. I could not read them. It was impossible for me to reflect on grief in the abstract. I was in grief. My book is a grieving cry. In the course of my cry, I hold out the vision of God as with me in my grief, of God as grieving with me, God with me in my mourning. He goes on to say the traditional question of suffering is, why does God permit moral evil and suffering that serves no discernible good? Well, he says, if we believe that God suffers in response to our suffering, then in addition to that question, we have another, which is, why does God allow what God endures in tears? I do not know the answer, he says, in faith I live the question. In faith I live the question. In other words, on the question of suffering, we have, as Christians, some answers, better, in fact, and more nuanced answers than any other worldview is capable of offering. But still, we don't have all the answers. We can say some things about why God would allow suffering generally, but we cannot speak to each and every particular instance of suffering and say, oh, I know why God would have allowed this or that or that or that. But the Bible also teaches us that we shouldn't expect to know because we are finite. This is part of what God's answer to Job at the end of the book of Job teaches us, that we can't expect to know everything because we're not God. Were we there when God laid the earth's foundations? No. Did we set the limits of the sea? No. Sorry. Can we bring forth stars? in their constellations? No. Do we know everything? No. But God does. And his purposes are good. 
So it doesn't make sense to judge God just because we can't make complete sense of it all. We just have to trust the one who can. It's funny, I thought I turned my phone off earlier. <laughs> Obviously not. It is now, <laughs> make sure. But the Bible the Bible's clear that when tragedies strike us as human beings, we need to be really careful as Christians that we don't rush into simplistic answers. When people suffer tragic circumstances, the instinct in those who view life from a karmic perspective is to say, oh, they must have done something wrong to deserve what they're getting. But when you read the book of Job, you'll realize that this is the view of Job's friends, a view that God condemns. Jesus tells us that life is not so simplistic as that. He reminds us in Luke chapter 13, in that passage about the people who were killed in the fall of a tower in Siloam. We don't learn anything else, but it just seems like a, a tragic accident, a tower falls. And Jesus points out these people weren't necessarily any worse than anyone else. In other words, tragedies happen to the just and to the unjust, to the kind and to the unkind. Bad things happen to cruel, to cruel people and to nice people. And that's part of the mystery of life, this side of heaven. I remember the first time I took my then 18-month-old daughter, Grace, uh, to the hospital to get her uh, children's uh, needle vaccination and all the things you get, what, you know, measles, mumps, all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, she was our first, first child, so this is a big deal. Never done this before. My wife said she would find it too difficult to, um, to go there and, and watch the whole thing happen. It really isn't that pleasant seeing someone stick a giant uh, needle into your child's arm. So very graciously of my wife, she volunteered me for that job. And uh, I remember feeling rather nervous about how Grace, my daughter, would react um, to this needle and what she would think of me, her loving, protecting father, when she saw that I had allowed her to be hurt. Because the thing is, if you've never done this, your job as a parent is to sit uh, your child on your lap and make them feel as relaxed and as comfortable as, as possible with what is going on so that the nurse can, can, can safely stick the needle in. In other words, they make you entirely complicit with this act of, uh, of, of, of violence. <laughs> and so as my daughter's sitting there happily on my lap, smiling at me and smiling at the nurse with this pretty shiny thing in her hand, I braced myself for what I knew would be an absolute shock to Grace. And as the needle went in, and Grace's face went instantly red, shifting from an expression of contentment to one of shock and pain. I kept my eyes on her face, afraid, actually, that I would read in her face the fear that somehow I, who was allowing this to happen, no longer loved her. But thankfully, I never saw that look. But what I did see in the expression of her now tear-stained face was the question, why? Why, Daddy, given that I know that you love me, are you allowing this to happen? And the reality was that Grace was of such an age that even if I had tried to explain it to her, she would not have been able to understand. But the fact that an 18-month-old didn't have the capacity to understand why any good parent would allow um, a stranger to painfully stick a needle into her arm didn't mean that there were no good reasons. I knew that one day she would possess the capacity to understand, but for now all she had to go on was her trust in me. But was her trust in me an unreasonable trust? Was it a blind faith? No, it wasn't a blind faith. It was a faith in me based on the evidence of my love for her 
from the very first day of her life. Similarly, the Bible holds that we can trust God does have good reasons for allowing to happen what he does in this life, even if we ourselves can't understand them, that he's wise and that he's good and that one day we will understand, but not today and in all likelihood, not in this lifetime, but that we can still trust God, not only because, as the book of Job points out, he is the only one who sees the big picture and holds all things together, but also because the Gospels make clear this God suffers with us. God suffers with us. Uh, as, as the Russian novelist Dostoevsky was staring at a painting of Jesus' body, he was struck by this profound truth that no other God has scars. No other God has scars. And he ministers to us through his wounds, just as we so often minister most powerfully to others through our wounds. For the cross, which is his place of suffering, is our place of healing. Uh, Tim Keller writes, we may not know the exact reason why we suffer in any given instance, but one thing suffering cannot mean, in light of the cross, it cannot mean that God doesn't love us. The cross is God's answer to a hurting world. And just as the cross reminds us that this world is not the way that it should be, so too the resurrection promises us that this world will one day be restored to what it should be. The resurrection reminds us that this life of suffering is not all there is, that there is hope and meaning beyond this world and beyond this life, beyond it, but not separate to it. This life is a chapter in our story, but the final chapter hasn't happened yet. Like Mary, weeping at the feet of Jesus in response to Lazarus's death and Jesus not being there to save him. She was only midway through the story. We are only midway through the story. As we read that passage from John chapter 11, we know that she's not at the end of the story because in the midst of a grieving community, we know that when all hope seems lost, Jesus walks to the tomb of Lazarus and cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And to the wonderment of all, Lazarus, now raised to life, does exactly that. And in the blink of an eye, tears of sadness turn into tears of joy. In the midst of our suffering and grief and loss, we need to remember that this is not the end of the story. Like Mary and Martha, now we grieve, but only for a little while longer. For one day the world will be restored to what it should be. One day Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eyes. One day the sting of suffering will be removed. One day all will be restored. One day all that is wrong will be put right. And one day, in the words of Sam Gamgee from Lord of the Rings, all that is sad in the world will come untrue. Because one day the king is coming home and the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And in the meantime, Jesus calls us to trust him. Even in the midst of disappointments and pain, so terrible that we cannot help but cry out to God in frustration and tears. But even then, we can trust in Jesus Christ. Not only because, let's face it, 
Where else have we to go? But also because the one who promises to be with us is worthy of our trust and he has the scars to prove it.